0: Thanks for joining the Inspired Churches podcast. If this is your first time listening in, we're glad you're here. For more information about our church, visit www.inspiredchurches.com. Now, let's listen to the word from Pastor Philip Muella. If you have your Bibles, we can open up to Isaiah chapter 8. Yes, Isaiah chapter 8. You're jumping all over the place today. Um, But uh, as we're continuing on with our Advent series, Advent sermon series, and uh, it's been a really interesting time for myself uh, in reflecting on what Advent truly means, and uh, this is the first time that I've ever really uh, taken a look at Advent during this time. And I've said this a few times, typically during Christmas, it's all about the Christmas season. It's all about the cartoons and it's all about the movies. And just, uh, we do a really good job in America of commercializing Christmas. And so, um, and it's a beautiful thing. I got no problem with that. But I think one of the things that Advent does for us is it causes us to look beyond Christmas. To know that Christmas is just the beginning of the story. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not the end. And that Jesus came once as a baby and he lived his life on this earth as a man. But he's coming back again for his church. And during the Christmas seasons, for a lot of people, it tends to be a depressing season. It tends to be a season uh, uh, in which you're maybe not as happy as you used to be. Or, or it tends to be a season that for a lot of people, even though we see the commercials and the ads and the movies and it's an exciting time and everyone's smiling, there are a lot of people that are walking around that are not excited during this time. In fact, this time is bringing up negative Feelings. A lot of people that feel trapped and sometimes they even have to fake it and fake the smile. And one of the things that Advent has taught me that I hope that it teaches you is that don't get caught up in a shadow because a shadow cannot produce A shadow is not strong enough to produce what you need. And one of the things I want to warn you is that Christmas is an amazing thing to look back at, but there is a greater thing that's coming, and that's the return of Jesus. That's the return when he'll come back to his church. And so really real quick before I get into the text and get into the introduction, um, we talked about this. Advent teaches us to look at Christmas, but it also teaches us to look behind Christmas. For the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophesies the coming of a Messiah. And then Advent also encourages us not just to look at, not just to look behind, but also to look ahead. It doesn't stop with a look back. But it it starts and begins with a longing and a desiring for the time when Jesus will come back for his church. I want you all to know that he is coming back for his church. He will come back. He will come back, ready or not. He will come back. It's almost like that old uh, that old game we used to play. Ready or not, here I come. Jesus will come back, and so um, I'm excited for that. And so on New Year's night, we're actually going to talk about his coming back. We're going to talk about looking forward to his return. And so, please, um, if you know somebody want to come, bring them out. It'll be a great time to come. And like Jeffrey said, maybe. Uh, 10 a.m. is a little early for some people, which I don't know who, but uh, maybe it's a little early for some, or maybe there's a football game that they absolutely just, you know, enjoy. I wish you're, you know, the Raiders would just play, you know, the 49ers would just, even though there's not much to watch with my squad, unfortunately. Um, But anyways, Isaiah chapter 8. I could totally hear my baby crying right now. Or at least there's about three different people that probably looked and thought, but I was like, that sounds like P3. All right, Isaiah chapter 8. Before we get into Isaiah, uh, we're jumping right into like the middle of the Old Testament. Well, actually kind of towards the end of the Old Testament. And, uh, but before we do that, I want to give you a little context, a little understanding. I typically don't like to just jump into a story without setting it up. And so we're going to jump into a story today, but I'm going to do my best to kind of catch you up before we actually get into the scripture. So uh, you guys, are you okay to learn a little bit this morning? All right, cool. Talk back to me a little bit. Talk to you. So, so just a couple of things you need to know about the history of the Hebrew people and the history of Israel. Um, first of all, the first king of Israel, his name was Saul. And then after Saul had passed, there was a successor, a famous king by the, by the name of David. I think we're all very familiar with King David, David and, the, and, the, and Goliath. But after David passes away, he passes the kingdom to his son, Solomon. Now, here's an interesting thing is that after Solomon dies, there is a really dark time in the story and history of Israel. After the death of King Solomon, the Hebrew kingdom splits in half, splits in two. In fact, we should have a map coming up from uh, right there for you. Is it there? Good. And so after Solomon passes away, after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits into two, and there's a northern part of the kingdom, and if you look and you see, I believe it's blue, the northern part of the kingdom is actually called the kingdom of Israel, and Israel's capital is Samaria, and then there's a southern part in this split, and that is called Judah, and Judah's capital is, um, why am I blanking, Jerusalem. And so you have, after King Solomon, you have a split, you have Israel and uh, Samaria as their capital, and then you have Judah, and then you have Jerusalem as Judah's capital. Are you guys with me? And we're in Isaiah 8 today. In order to get to Isaiah 8, from the split of the kingdom, 200 years have passed, so 200 years of history has passed. Now as is Israel being split. So by the time we get into the chapter that we're going to get in today, 200 years have passed since the split. Are you with me? And it's been a real dysfunctional history. It's been a history full of ineffective and corrupt kings. Kings that are turning to idols. Kings that are worshiping the gods of the land. That are surrounding them. Uh, there's something called the. There's the intermingling of religions. There, uh, Judah and Israel. Um, they they uh, they go through a period of time in which their kings are constantly uh, allying with uh, with the people that are surrounding them that don't understand God, that don't worship Yahweh, and in fact worship all of these horrible idols that do. They 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 practice some wicked wicked things. And there's a, a lot of um, there is a lot of intermingling of the religion, and so what you have throughout this time is not just Israel and uh, Judah bowing at well Israel mainly bowing towards uh, um, um, false gods and false religions, but you also have what's called religious syncretism, and it's the marriage of two religions. And so it's I'm going to keep a little bit of my religion and mix in some of the religions of the gods that are around. And so you have a really dysfunctional time, kings that are backstabbing each other, uh, kings that are being assassinated, and ultimately, what this does is it creates a real fractured and divided and a vulnerable people. And what this, what these land, if you see that it's split in two, what it creates infighting between Judah and between Israel. But not only does that, but it makes, it makes them vulnerable to the attacks of outside powers. And it just so happens that that little strip of area happens to be a key military and a key, uh, just a key piece of land that a lot of outside powers are constantly um, rubbing up against. And so here the little, the little split up Hebrew nation now um, has to constantly come up against greater powers. Are you guys with me? So uh, just a little bit of background about, about Isaiah as well. Isaiah is known as the Messianic prophet, or one of the names that he's been given, because he records some of the most impactful and accurate prophecies of the Messiah's entrance into the world. So there's a few things I want you to know. The first thing is this. Isaiah is from Judah, and he prophesies um, in Jerusalem. So Isaiah is a resident of Jerusalem, and he's, he prophesies to at least four kings of, the, Ju- of uh, the kingdom of Judah, are you with me? And so the entire book of Isaiah portrays God's plan for Judah and that in spite of its rebellious history, Judah is central. Judah is central to the future coming of a final heir of David who will unify the kingdom and ultimately bring light to the entire world. Are you with me? Isaiah has been given a tough task of declaring God A difficult yet hopeful message to Judah. So in chapter 8, when we're about to read right now, Isaiah is prophesying to Judah. And he's been given a very difficult task. He wants to bring a difficult message. But he wants to tell the people that within this difficult message, there still is what? Hope. And this is what he says. God will purify his people through judgment. That's the difficult part. But in that purification, there is a greater purpose of grace. So what do you mean by that? It means judgment will produce a repented yet faithful remnant of people. And from that faithful remnant of people, God will restore them back to their land, and he will rebuild all of Israel and establish the line that has been cut off where this king will come that will ultimately bring deliverance, not just to Israel, but also to the entire world. Are you with me? So Isaiah then becomes a prophet that declares hope is on his way. In the same time where the people of Judah are entering into judgment, judgment of God. You with me? So Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, and we'll read 3 and 4. It reads like this. And I went to the prophetess. And she conceived and bore a son. Now, the prophetess would be Isaiah's wife. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father, my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now, let me, let me get you to understand what I just said. Judah is experiencing uncertain times because Israel, remember Judah and Israel are separate at this time. Israel has aligned itself with Syria and is marching against Judah with a plan to sack the capital and replace the king. So the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah... And really, through the prophet Isaiah's son, reveals to Judah that Israel and Syria will not prevail against Judah. Are you guys with me? In fact, the Lord instructs Isaiah to name his son Maher Shalal Hashbaz, or this is what it means. Imagine naming your son this. He says, "Name your son. Plunder comes quickly. <laughs> Come here, plunder." <laughs> Name your son, plunder comes quickly. And so this is what the Lord instructs Isaiah. Name your son, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, or plunder comes quickly, as a sign to Judah that before the baby even learns to speak, the threat of Israel and Syria will be destroyed. Plunder is coming against your enemies. Now this sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? Sounds like a good deal for Judah. But there's more to the story. You see, in order to repel the oncoming attack from Israel and Syria, the king of Judah, his name is Ahaz. You say Ahaz? Good. I'm not going to make you say Bahir Shalal. Okay, never mind. So in order to repel the oncoming attack from Israel and Syria, Judah's king, King Ahaz, forsakes trusting in the Lord and instead goes into partnership with another power in the region. So King Ahaz forsakes his trust in the Lord, and he puts his trust in another king of another nation, and these are the Assyria. Assyria. Got it? So let me break this down one more time, okay? So Judah's here. Israel's there. Israel's coming against Judah. And Israel has partnered with Syria. You guys with me? And as they're approaching, the Lord sends a prophetic word that says they will be plundered. Ahaz, the king says, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to partner with another power because I am afraid. I don't know if I trust that word altogether. And so I'm going to partner with a king. I'm going to partner with Assyria. And we're going to partner together. And we're going to go against Israel and Syria. Okay? So there's Syria and then Assyria. Are oh, You guys see the difference there? Okay. Just want to make sure. Now here's what happens, though. Not long after Assyria destroys Israel and Syria, So that word from the Lord that said that plunder comes quickly, that Israel and Syria will be destroyed comes true because Assyria comes in and destroys them and plunders them. Massive crazy things happen. That's for another time. But not long after Assyria does that, guess who Assyria turns on? Judah. Are you with me? So not long after Assyria destroys Israel and Syria, it turns its war path towards Judah and the, listen, the very agent that Judah thought would deliver them now becomes the source of the biggest disaster. Now listen to the description of what takes place now to Judah. If you're in Isaiah chapter 8, skip down to verse 7. It says this, Behold, the Lord is bringing, this is Isaiah talking to Judah, Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, The king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even the neck of Judah, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Okay, listen. This is obviously not your typical Christmas message. It's not your Christmas, some of you are like, okay, where's Christmas, where's Advent, I'm trying to figure out this history lesson, you lost me a couple of times. This is obviously not your typical Christmas narrative. But this scenario will set the tone for one of the most popular and powerful Christmas prophecies of all time. Remember that, okay, can you remember that? This scenario will set the tone for one of the most popular and powerful Christmas prophecies ever remember that. Now I want you to imagine the moment. Judah has narrowly escaped destruction on one side, only to be dominated and overwhelmed on the other side. And here is perhaps one of the most difficult things to understand in the entire story. Because both Israel and Judah forsook trusting in the Lord, God raises up Assyria as his instrument of judgment. Listen, There was nothing Judah could do to stop Assyria because God was behind it. So Assyria becomes an instrument of God's judgment. So God uses Assyria to sack Israel, and then he uses Assyria to come up to the neck of Judah. Are you with me? Can you imagine this kind of predicament? It's not like you could pray your way out of it. It's not like you could pray for the Lord to stop it because it was God's plan. So instead of prophesying a way of escape, this is important. Instead of prophesying a way of escape, God instructs Isaiah to prophesy to the faithful a way to prepare and preserve while in it. Are you with me? Please, if you didn't get anything else I said. I lost you everywhere else. Instead of prophesying a way of escape, you can't escape what's coming because God is behind it. God prophesies to the faithful a way to preserve while in it. So Isaiah essentially becomes, I can't believe I put this on my notes. Isaiah essentially becomes a modern day like survival guide for the faithful. Like a zombie apocalypse <laughs> no it's not like that okay but you ever watch you know you ever watch I had to put us like you ever watch those shows any doomsday watchers like you watch those shows and they're like building bunkers and like some of you are probably one of those people right you're buying the cans of, yeah okay now you just don't want to admit it no I mean there's some truth to it right we'll be at your house <laughs> and when it all goes down we'll be at your place you would be like no I'll have my gun out <laughs> So Isaiah kind of essentially to the faithful is saying, look, something is coming that is unescapable, but I'm going to give you a plan if you stick to this to preserve while it's there. So for the rest of the chapter, Isaiah is going to give the faithful three ways they can prepare and preserve in times of national crisis and judgment. All right, so here are the three for your note takers. Number one, Isaiah is going to say this. To the faithful, going through crisis, facing judgment with their people. Fear God and not man. That will be the first thing he'll tell them. Fear God and not man. The second thing he'll tell them this. While you're fearing God and not man, learn to wait patiently on the Lord. Wait patiently on the Lord. And number three, seek the light of God's word in the midst of the darkness of the world. So I'm going to say this again. Number one, fear God, not man. Number two, wait patiently on the Lord. Number three, seek the light of God's word in the midst of the darkness of the world. In other words, you ready for this? Don't be tempted to find comfort in dark places. When in dark times, don't be tempted to find comfort in dark places. Let's start with the first one. The faithful will fear God and not man. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 through 15. It reads like this. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying... Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Now you got to remember, Isaiah is prophesying to people, to the faithful that are in Judah, that are being overwhelmed by the Assyrians during this time. Isaiah is saying to the faithful, while in Judah, while Judah is being overwhelmed by the Assyrians, for the Lord spoke to me and he said this, he warned people, don't walk in this way. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. In other words, while you're going through this dreadful time, dread the Lord. Don't dread man, but dread the Lord. Fear God, not man. He says this, let him be your fear, referring to God. Let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. Isn't that amazing? He says, fear God, and if you fear God and make him your dread, he'll become your safety. That's really weird. You fear God, and usually when you fear someone it's because you feel unsafe around them. But in this place, he says, if you fear me, then I will become your safety. He says, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel. A trap and a snare in the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fail, they shall fall, and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now watch this. Here's what the Lord is saying to the faithful. Don't repeat the same mistake that your king Ahaz did. This is what got Judah in this place, in this position in the first place. Ahaz panicked when he was confronted by threats of the enemy. And instead of fearing the Lord and holding his ground, he aligned himself with Assyria. Now, if you notice, the word conspiracy was used in here. The word conspiracy in this scripture means to tie together. It means to be aligned with or linked to. What God was telling the faithful was this, be careful not to allow your panic to put you on a crooked course. Be careful not to allow your panic to put you on a crooked course. In times of great distress, the faithful need to escape the temptation of self-preservation and trust in God-preservation. In times of distress, the faithful need to escape the temptation of self-preservation and trust in God preservation. What do you mean by that? Self-preservation causes you to lean on man, while God preservation causes you to lean on God. To a God-fearing man, God becomes a refuge or a sanctuary of safety. But to a man-fearing man, God becomes a trap. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's really deep stuff. Because I want you to know, I don't know if you, when we were reading that, he said, if you fear me and you dread me, I'll be a sanctuary. And then he says, but I'll also be a trap and a snare and a stone of offense. What is he saying? He's saying, if you fear me, I will hide you and protect you. If you fear man, I will come in and become a snare and a trap to you. Are you guys with that? Had Ahaz trusted God, Judah would have fallen on God's grace. But instead, Ahaz placed his trust in Assyria. And as a result, Judah falls onto God's judgment. Are you with me? Now, the Message Bible paraphrases this uniquely. So I'm just going to read it for you. You can just sit and listen. But I I want you to understand what's going on. I'm gonna read Isaiah 8, 11 through 15 again, but I'm gonna use the message paraphrase version. It says this, God spoke strongly to me, grabbed me with both hands and warned me not to go along with this people. He said, don't be like this people. Always afraid somebody is plotting against them. Don't fear what they fear. Don't take on their worries. If you're going to worry, worry about the holy. Fear God of the angel armies. The holy can be a hiding place or a boulder block in your way. Let me say that again. The holy can either be a hiding place or a boulder blocking your way. The rock standing in the willful way of both the house of Israel and Judah, a barbed wire fence preventing trespass to the citizens of Jerusalem. Many of them are going to run into that rock and get their bones broken get tangled up in barbed wire and not get free of it. Two kinds of people emerge in the midst of judgment, faithful and unfaithful. Two kinds of people emerge in the midst of judgment, faithful and unfaithful. The remnant or the rebellious. In uncertain times, the faithful remnant will fear God and stay in his will. While the rebellious will take refuge in compromise. Right? In times of judgment, in times of distress, times of persecution, there will be a faithful and there will be an unfaithful. It will be revealed. Isn't that interesting? It will be revealed. Something will happen, and as that happening, it will reveal. It will just come up. Two types of people will emerge. Faithful, the unfaithful. In uncertain times, the faithful remnant will fear God. And stay in His will, Amen. While the rebellious will take refuge and compromise and be crushed. Second thing He says. Remember, first thing He says: fear God, not man. Second thing He says is: wait on the Lord. Isaiah eight sixteen through seventeen, the Word of the Lord says this: Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. Who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob? And I will hope in him. While the Lord hides his face, I'll wait for him. This is what Isaiah is saying. Now, waiting never seems like a good idea, doesn't it, right? Waiting never feels like a great strategy, especially when the threat is imminent or when you're waiting while in judgment. Like, can we rush on the Lord? Can we go a little faster, Lord? Is there any way we can speed through this process? And the Lord says, "No, waits." On me. It never feels like a good idea. But this is the scenario Judah finds itself in. Sometimes waiting feels foolish. Sometimes it seems ridiculous because most of the time we equate waiting on God with inactivity. The waiting on God that God is referring to is not a passive inactivity, that is not what God wants us to do. Listen to me. Waiting on the Lord has less to do with your activity and more to do with your focus. Hear me again. Waiting on the Lord has less to do with your activity and more to do with your focus. What are you focusing on? A lot of times waiting seems like the wrong thing to do because you feel like, well, I don't want to sit still. God is not calling us to sit still. He's calling us to focus. Waiting on God means attending to him like a waiter would a table. And I was a server for many years, Chili's, Union City. (laughs) Trust me, when I I was kind of going through this, I was like, I know what that is. I have a lot of stories. I'm tempted to go off topic right now and tell you a crazy story, but that was last week. I got all that out of me. By the way, we don't have cockroaches at my house, just so you know. My wife was like, "Babe, I think you told him we had cockroaches at our house. Like, it's bad enough you told him we had mice at our house. Like, no, we had two mice. I killed one. Forgive me. Anyway, <laughs> that's that was for the podcast. So I got to remember I'm being recorded now. It's going all over. All right. Right. Thank you. So waiting on the Lord means to be totally attentive. To the Lord, totally tuned in and focused on his every move. And responsive to his every desire. Waiting on the Lord teaches us to fight the battles his way, not our own way. Now while studying this chapter, there's a verse that jumped out to me as a man, a father, and a leader. So. If there's anybody in here, you find yourself in a place of influence, I want you to hear this next verse. You might be a father in your house. You might be a leader in your workplace. Mamas, you are equally as influential. Or you might be someone who aspires to some sort of leadership in your life, whether it be church leadership, whether it be a work leadership. So I want you to listen to Isaiah's words here in verse 18. Isaiah says to wait on the Lord, and then Isaiah makes this statement. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. I'm going to explain what that means. Isaiah declares this to the faithful. Look at me and look at my family. Watch us during this difficult time. Not only will I speak this message, but my family and I will become the embodiment of the message for you to look at. It's a powerful statement. If you're looking for an example of someone who will fear God and not man in times of panic. If you are looking for someone who will wait on the Lord in a time of threat, look no further than me and my family. My family and I will be a sign to you. My prayer this week has been, as I've read this scripture over and over again, Lord, raise up families at Inspire Church who will become pillars in this city and pillars in this church. Somebody's gotta get excited here. My prayer this week is raise my family up, raise your family up. In times of difficulty and panic, will you run, man of God? Will you hide, man of God? Will you compromise, woman of God? Or will you be a sign and a wonder of what God is doing in this church, in this city, in this region, or in this nation? You get to choose. And believe you, me, I believe in men and women, and I'm not sexist, but men of God, you are leading your home. Yeah. Wow. It's been my prayer. And for me, my wife, my children, As my prayer that God would do that in this church. Who are the pillars of this church? We're a baby church. We're an infant church. They say age your church based on how long it's been around. I'm like, well, we're literally like two months old. You know, I'm looking for some people who won't be complainers, but for people who will stand in the gap during this time and pray. Less complainers and more prayers. I'm looking for people that will give solutions, people that will pray, that will fast for the city, for the church. I'm looking for young men, young men, young adults, single men. Looking for you to lead your girlfriends, to lead your to lead your relationships in a way of godliness. This may lose a couple of visitors, but that's okay. We are not a church just patting you on your back. We are calling you to something greater. We don't just go through the Bible and say, well, what thing is going to be encouraging? Let's skip the other stuff. When will young men... Stand up and lead their relationships and lead their lead their their, I don't even know what to call you, your fiances, your girlfriends, your whatever you want to call them. When will the young men do that? I just have such a bird on my heart for young men to lead. Because you are great leaders. You just lead them in another way. I need to stay on. Oh man, when I get off, when I get off, ah, stay on your iPad, man. You're gonna get in trouble. Finally, the last thing. The faithful will seek the light of God's word in the midst of the darkness of this world. Isaiah 8, 19 through 20 says this. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. I love how the Bible describes mediums and necromancers. They chirp and they mutter. And when they say to you, inquire of these, should not a people inquire to their God? Isn't that amazing? He's saying, wait a minute, don't you call yourself Christian? Don't you call yourself a servant of God? Then why wouldn't you inquire to me? Why are you going to fortune tellers? Wouldn't they inquire of me? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. The difference between the faithful and the rebellious in chaotic times is where they go to feed themselves and find their peace. Overwhelmed, threatened, and even held captive to Assyria, all of these things tempted Judah to find guidance and comfort in the occult and dark places. So many searched for purpose and answers from those who would consult the dead and interact with the kingdom of darkness. But the faithful had to learn to hold on to God's word. Now, watch this, even if God's word was a word of judgment. Here's what I've noticed about the tendencies of our people we don't just seek a word. We seek a word that's going to make us feel better about our situation. We're word seekers. I don't, think it, I don't think this generation doesn't seek words. We are the most word seeking. I've seen so much that we seek a word. It's not about seeking a word, but it's about the source in which the word is sought after. The, so where is that word coming from? And what I realize is we're not just word seekers, but we seek a word that will tickle our ears regardless of the source. So, hear me, if God's truth makes us feel good, we'll receive it for a season until it starts to disagree with our lifestyle. So if God's truth makes us feel good, we'll receive it for a season until it starts to disagree with the desires of our lifestyle. Now watch this. But the faithful learn to trust the goodness of God's word even if that word causes discomfort or even speaks judgment. The faithful understand that it is more beneficial to be uncomfortable in God's light than comfortable in the world's darkness. The faithful understand that it is more beneficial to be uncomfortable in God's light than comfortable in the world's darkness. Those who who shut their eyes to the light of God's word will be left to find their way in darkness those who shut their eyes to the light of God's word will be left to find their way in utter darkness i read a quote cro- a quote from an unknown author that said this all the miseries that ever were felt or witnessed on earth are as nothing Compared with what will overwhelm those who leave the words of Christ to follow their own desires. Can I say that again? I've been repeating myself the whole time. All the miseries that ever were felt or witnessed on the earth are as nothing compared with what will overwhelm those who leave the words of Christ to follow delusions. It's deep, huh? Listen to the description of those from Judah who placed their trust in outside sources other than God. Listen. Isaiah 8, 21, verse 22. This is the description that God gives Isaiah of those who put their trust in outside sources other than God's word. Scripture says this. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contempt, contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Remember early, earlier today when I started this message, remember what I said, this wasn't your typical Christmas message. Actually feels kind of like, oh my gosh, is it going to get better? This isn't your typical Christmas narrative. But this story paves the way for one of the most powerful and popular Christmas prophecies ever. Despite their difficulty, it was these conditions that birthed forth a longing inside of the faithful. Despite their distress... It were these conditions that birthed forth a hope for something greater. Because when you're there in the darkness, you are hoping that this is not it. There's got to be more. Despite their difficulty, it was these conditions that birthed forth a great messianic expectation. This is what their hope sounded like. And this is what the longing of Advent truly is. Now, before I read the next portion of Isaiah, I want to invite you to enter into the longing of Israel and the longing of Judah in this moment. Before I read this next text, this next prophecy from Isaiah, I want to invite you into that moment. Your nation has been split 200 years of violence, negativity, idol worship, and idolatry. Your enemies have surrounded you from all sides. You have been taken captive. You are experiencing judgment, and your prayers are only met by God saying, wait in judgment. And you feel dark, and you feel distressed, and inside of you is a longing for a time in the past when we were free. A time when God delivered us from the mighty hand of Egypt, when God's mighty hand came down and parted the Red Seas and through miraculous signs and wonders brought us into freedom and gave us a land that he promised. That seems so far away now because we are right back in the same situation we were. We are slaves, we're in judgment, and God's mighty hand is nowhere to be found. This is the longing of Israel, and this is the longing of Judah, when Isaiah declares this, Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, light has now shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle to molt and garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, This time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For unto us a child is born, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. And in his kingdom there will be no end, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government. And of the peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Before we pray, we're done. In order to understand Christmas, we have to understand the whole story. We have to understand... That 2,000 years ago, the first advent, when Christ first came into the manger, and we love the manger, and we love the wise men, and we love the nativity scene, and some of you have it in your houses. But you have to understand that that moment was so significant. That that moment was prophesied and declared in times of darkness. That moment brought hope to a deep, distressed people. And once again for his church today. We look forward to another moment that's coming. That even though we may find ourselves in exile, this world is not ours. We're only passing through. We're foreigners in this world. Our value system and our beliefs, the the world and our system, it clashes and collides. Sometimes, young men and young women, it feels like we want to be like the world. We want to be accepted because everything around us is telling us how to talk and walk and act, and it clashes with the word. Don't you ever feel like an exile? Don't you ever feel like you're misunderstood? The season of Advent invites you to long while you're in this world. This is not your home. This is not your home. We are as Christians and people who believe in the coming of the Messiah, we know that we are just passing through. There's something more, than, there's something greater, something better, something more. And even when you're in your darkness right now, there's something better. That some of the greatest words and prophecies of comfort that have ever come have come from men and women of God that were surrounded by darkness. And so as you walk through this season of Christmas, and for some of us it may not be the most exciting season, it might bring up some filling memories. I want you to know that this is not it. Christmas is not it. Christmas Day is not it. It's not. It's not it. So if you're missing some family members right now, or maybe you're fighting, there's a split going on, you don't even know what you're going to do on Christmas. I want you to know that Christmas is a shadow. It's not going to bring you the healing that you need. It's not going to bring the restoration that you want. I want you to know it's a shadow, and shadows are weak. But I want you to know that our God is strong. It's about Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Inspired Churches aims to be a church that the city loves. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon on Journey. Come back next week as Pastor Phillip continues on the six-part series. For more information about how you can get involved or about our community, visit www.inspirechurches.com